About 750 years ago, before the time of the Jesus and the time of the destruction of the temple, there was a very, very powerful king who was there. And by the way, we're, if you have your Bible, you might want to take that out. Uh, but about 750 years ago, this happened, and it was an important thing. There was kind of a showdown between two very, very important men. One was a king, the other was a prophet. And you can probably figure out who that is. But what's interesting is you read about this when we talk about hope, you talk about this thing about what God did in a time of things were terrible for God's people. For what happened was King Ahab became king. He'd been a great, great grandson, I guess you would say, of David, but he was nothing like David. Now, David had his problems, that's for sure, but he was a man after God's own heart. And that is not what Ahab was all about. In fact, if the passage of you have, in fact, I have a passage right here I'd like to read real quick. 1 Kings chapter 16. We might as well get what the Bible has to say, what they think about this man named Ahab. I'm reading this in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. I know some of you memorized it, but just stay with us if you would. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's king Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord more than all that were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, where a trifle matter, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and worship him. That's like as bad as it can get when you're talking about a king. Rather than being a king who pointed them to Yahweh God, to the God that they'd served and they'd known, they were turning away to Baalism. Baalism had lots of reasons. People liked it. There was a lot of pump and pomp and all that stuff going on. And, but that's not what God had, not had for them. And so we have a lousy king. Verse 31 again, Then as following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, there was a trifle matter that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Bethbael, king of Sidonians, and they proceeded to serve Baal and worship them, and then make it worse. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. If you get the picture, this is one terrible guy. And so what you've got is a guy who is a real loser and yet powerful. And God is going to use a single man by the name of Elijah and he's going to do something really important with him. And if what he's going to do is he tells, if you remember the story, the story is that he goes on to say, okay, Elijah, here's what I want you to do. Got a message for you. You go tell Ahab it ain't going to rain for the next three years until I tell it to. Well, you know, it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to see it happen. And of course, as time goes on, there isn't any rain. And they all start panicking because they realize no rain, no crops. No crops, no food. No rain, no crops, no eat. You die. And so what happened is that we have Ahab is becoming more and more nervous, more and more afraid, and he wants to kill Elijah and get rid of him, or at least make him to do something by God. And so what happens is they start doing this, and so what happens is he has to go and flee. 
And remember, you know the story that ravens come and provide for him and what a great thing that was. But at the end of that passage, what it says is, but then even that place, that place called Kareth, it ran out of water. And suddenly you've got a prophet with no water and God does a strange thing. He has him to go to a different place away from his home in Israel. Look at if you would in this, well this passage, let me say this about this, about the water supply. You know, we think about this in Texas. It's really in the last few years when we've had some really bad times where we realize how water is so important. For them, water was everything. And to not have it was just dying. But God had purposes, a purpose for age Elijah. And what he was going to do is he was going to not only have to be challenged to his faith, but he's going to challenge another person, a woman. And it's going to be an important thing. If you look, want to look if you want in your pa passage, turn over to just another page, the First Kings chapter 17. We're going to be looking at that in just a moment. But notice what's going on here. In First Kings chapter 17, God tells him to go to this place called Zarephath. It's a Phoenician city along the coastline. And the question's often asked, why would he go there? I mean, that's far away from Israel, from where they're at. And we're not sure exactly why. One of the reasons was probably it was a good place for Elijah to hide. He had men looking out for him to kill him, but at least this was a place that he could be okay and not be caught. But it's probably more than that. It probably is more the fact that God has a divine encounter for Elijah that's going to speak to him and teach him. And what we're going to see here is this encounter with a woman, and it's interesting, it's one thing, it's not, it's interesting because it's with, involved in a, a, an encounter with a woman. Again, in that culture, a lot of times a man would not speak to a woman unless, you know, family was there or something. Uh, and then the fact that, you know, that Elijah is a prophet, he would probably not hang in around with a, you know, with a woman. But God chooses a woman who's not an Israelite. As far as we know, did not know the God of Israel. But God sent him there to meet this woman. And so he's got this encounter with a non-Israelite woman. And yet in the midst of all this, in the midst of all the despair that she's going through, you can see that God is working at it. Look at this passage, if you would. Verse, chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord of God lives, I stand before him. There will be no rain during these three years except for my command. And he goes on to tell him the thing we dropped down in verse 6. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and the evening, and he drank from the wadi places, the shallow area where the water would come through. But after a while, the wadi dried up because there was no rain in the land. And that's where we picked this up in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came, came to him, get up, go to Zarephath, take that, that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I've commanded a woman who's a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow woman gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, Please, bring me a little water in a cup and, and let me drink. Now remember, water is very precious at this point. She hardly has any. Her son has very little. And so it says, Who's a widow to provide for you? So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. He went to the city gate. Well, go, go, verse 11. As she went in to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of wood, I mean a piece of bread in your hand. It's like, well, I mean, you know, I don't know you, and uh, you don't know me. 
my son and I are about ready to die from thirst and from lack of food. I don't know what you're about. You kind of imagine that there's got to be for this woman. We don't know her name. But there had to be the sense of, can I trust this guy? He seems to be like he seems to have some kind of special power from God, but she's not sure. And she's wondering if, if she starts giving this guy the little bit of food that they have, could this guy be maybe a con man that she's going to end up dying earlier with her little boy because of the fact there's no food? And for her, there's a choice that has to be made. Am I in hope going to believe what this guy is asking me to do? Because if he's a con man, we're going to be dying a whole lot quicker than we plan to die because we have nothing left. So notice what happens when it says in this passage, but he said, go to verse, um, verse 12. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now, I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. What a tragic story. It's not a story that we see around us, but certainly it happens places around the world and still happens around the world. But here is this woman. She's been lost so much. And here's a man that seems to be offering hope. And sometimes hope is sometimes hard to believe. Could this guy really be true? Because he seems to be saying that he's going to take care of her. So he said in verse 13, he said, don't be afraid. Go and do as you said, only make me a small loaf to it and bring it out to me. Afterwards, you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, quote, The flour jar will not become empty, and the oil jug will not run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the earth. Surface of the earth. And so here's this woman. What do I do? I have almost no food. I have almost no water. And this guy wants me to give him water, and he wants me to give him food. And once again, it's the choice that must be made. Can I, in hope, believe that I'm going to be okay, and my boy will be okay? And she does that, and as we read in the passage, it tells what happened, verse 15. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. She and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty. The oil jug did not run dry, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken to Elijah. This passage on hope is so significant because in the reality is we do an awful lot thinking about hope. We don't often always use the word. But it is very, very important. It's interesting here, when we talk about the Bible, the word hope is not found that many times that you would think it would be in the Bible. For example, the word um, love occurs almost 500 times in the Bible. That makes sense. It's a lot of love in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's interesting, though, that the word hope appears only 158 times in the Bible. Why? I'm not sure. But it's interesting because hope appears only 158 times, and yet it shows up in very important places along the scriptures and what we see that God is doing. It's interesting that you don't get that word hope until you get all the way to the book of Ruth, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's Ruth. You finally get this word, Ruth. And the word is tikva. The Hebrew word is tikva. It's this idea of hope. And what's strange about it, when you come to look at it, the thing is talking about the fact, it goes to the fact that when Naomi was coming back to Israel, and she said, listen, my daughter, go back. Go back to your family. You know, what if you think if I had, if I had I, I, out of hope, would trust and believe that, that I was going to have children and you were going to have children. Do you think you'd be able to do that? And the answer is, of course, no. It's saying no. It's a negative sense in terms of it. But it's interesting here, this word tikva became an important thing in the life of the people of Israel. The name of Israel is hatikva, the hope, which reminds us that for them and for us, it's the hope that we have of what God has for us. So it's important to see here that what we have, that what the word hope is used in significant places in the Old New Testament, more in the New than in the Old. But some couple key places. Turn with me real quickly, if you would, to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm 40, chapter 2. That is a real famous one. You probably can get to it real quick. The Psalms has a lot of things dealing with hope. But this is Psalm 42, a very famous psalm, where it occurs twice in the passage right here. And I love this passage. Psalm 42, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While all day long people say to me, where's your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession in the house of God. Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God, and I am deeply depressed. And then he goes on later in the passage, and he talks to think, why am I so depressed? He repeats it again. Put your hope with God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. When you go into further into the passage, you'll see that it goes on more and talking about other places, and we'll skip a couple of the ones that are here. Isaiah, for example, one of the great prophets, there they had so much suffering, so much pain. Where is God? How could they have any hope after they've suffered so much? And yet you have these wonderful passages like Isaiah 45. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. Another passage that deals with this idea of hope. It's interesting, when we come to the New Testament, and I wasn't aware of this until I was working on it earlier this week, it was interesting to see that often, that the most cluster of the times where I saw the book, when it talked about this idea of talking about hope, it came out from the book that we've been studying for recent weeks. It's the book of Romans. In a dozen different places in the book of Romans, it talks about hope. Why the Apostle Paul thought that was so significant, I don't know. I'm sure he had a reason for it. But he, you know, we would expect, well, if we're talking about the Apostle Paul, we're thinking about righteousness. We're talking about justice. We're talking about uh, justification. All these big phrases, all important, all good, all necessary. But he spends a dozen, dozen passages talking about hope. Let me just give you a couple real quick, and you don't have to look them, and I'll just, most of them you're very familiar with. Familiar with. Romans chapter 4, 18. He, Abraham, believed, hoping against hope, 
so that he became the father of many nations. God said, I know you're 99 and I know your wife is old and past menopausal and you're not going to have a baby, but it is going to happen. There is hope that you can have a child and fulfill the promise that God has made to you. You drop down to chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Often you see the word hope, you see before it the word faith, because faith and hope often work together. As our faith grows, our opportunity to really hope continues to grow too. It's like, okay, I've seen God at work, and I really can have hope for what I believe God is asking God to do. So he talks about, he says that, we believe hope against all things. He notice this, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. I'll skip a couple more. Romans chapter 8, verse 24. Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hoped for what he sees? This is a time where a lot of us are buying Christmas presents and somebody says, hey, I bought your Christmas present. You're like, well, it's not going to be much of a surprise. You just told me, right? Well, yeah, I think when you're older, that doesn't matter. So when you're a kid, it's like, oh, you want the surprise, you know? Maybe when you're older, it's the Ferrari or whatever it is, you know? But the point is, this passage is talking about how significant hope is. Now, in this hope, we were saved. The hope to believe that we can believe the good news of the gospel that we can have relationship with God. Yet hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. I don't like that word patience. And yet I have to admit it's in the Bible. And it goes with the idea of hope. Because a lot of times when we're looking with hope, it doesn't always come in our timetable, it's in God's. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, everything that's done in this world is done by hope. Think about that. Everything that is done in this world is done with hope. When you're a young couple and you want to have children, you have this sense of hope. Like, we, we hope we, that we can have children. How the joy of having children, what that would be like. Ho hope that we could grow in relationships. All these things, he's saying, everything that's done in the world is ultimately done by hope. But the reality is, is people all around us are living without hope. I don't know if you read any, or saw the front page of the paper this morning. It's a sad story. It's a very sad story. A guy who became very wealthy, he used to be a car, sold cars on a lot, became wealthy, got very, very good thing. He had all kinds of wealthy people who were pouring money into his thing. This is a guy who they said he had $300 shirts that he wore and he had these special clothes and all the things and the places they went and then he killed himself. The government came in and pointed out that this was a Ponzi deal and all your friends that you've been giving this money to, there's no money there and you've lost everything. He had only one little daughter and he took his life. Hope, like Martin Luther said, everything that's done in this world is done by hope. When World War II ended, there were thousands of soldiers in England 
and France and America. By the way, m maybe you're aware of this, but remember there was a concentration, not a concentration camp, but there was a prison camp by White Rock Lake on the east side during World War II. Some of them from, um, from that area came from Germany. And during that time, there was a man particularly, a guy uh, who his name was Jorgen Multemann. It's a good German group, German name. He was a man who was in the Luftwaffe. Oh, no, excuse me. He was in the, in the, there in the Luftwaffe, and he, was a, he saw what was happening. He watched his country dying before him. He saw the savagery of war, and he was captured, and he was sent to a prison camp in Scotland. One of the things that had a big impact on when he was there was how nice the people were to him. They had just lost this horrible war. And yet he found out that the people who were there continued to be kind to him. And that struck a note with him. Why would they be kind to me? I'm German. I'm part of this whole thing that brought this whole disaster upon the part of the world. But they had something about them that was different. He was not a religious man. His father, his parents were not religious. But it got him thinking. And what happened is he started going through this and thinking more and more about him. An American guy came over and he was a chaplain. And he said, I've got a German Bible for you. Would you take it? And the guy said, I don't have anything to do. Sure, give me a Bible. So he gave him the Bible and he started reading it. And God did a big job in his life. As he said, he said, I didn't find God. God found me. And a man who was basically an atheist came to believe that God was there, God was with them, and he had hope. There's an interesting thing that he discovered, and he wasn't new about this. Other things after World War II showed this as well. He said one of the things that he found out very quickly, he was there until 1948 in the camp. He said those who had hope lived a whole lot longer than those that did not. He said those that maybe had a wife that was waiting for them back in you know, Germany, one who thought they still had maybe family that were alive in that area or hadn't been maybe you know, such a bad area, if they had hope, something to hang on to, that they could live, they could go another day. But the ones that had no hope, their families were dead, they had no way of contacting them, he said they're the ones that died first. It's sad to think about that, it, but it's reality. It's reality because, in fact, hope is so critical to who we are and what we're about. You know, this passage is important for us because it reminds us of the importance of hope. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped, the proof of what is not seen. I love that verse. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. We can't see hope. You can't take a flashlight and see what hope is, but you can experience hope. The hope of knowing that you've got an experience of hope, of recognizing that I can trust. That's why faith comes so important with it. Often faith grows and as grows our faith trust is and that grows with us in terms of having hope for God. In the book of Revelations, the end of the book of the Bible. In fact, I'm going to read that passage real quick. At the end of the Bible, it's really interesting as it ends there in this section. In the book of Revelation, 
listen to this pastor, pastor, passage. Thank you for I got that out. So let me read it. Revelation right here coming up. Okay. Nope, that's not the passage. And yet I had it marked out. Okay. Um, oh, here it is. Thank you. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no more. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared like a bride, uh, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with men, and he will, we will he will live with them. They will be his people, then God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will exist no longer. Grief crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. That's what this is all about when we come to this time, when we talk about the season, when we talk about hope. It's the fact we're not only just looking to Christmas, but we're looking to the fact that we're coming to that day. No more death, no more grief, no more pain. And we'll be, look, I make everything new. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time of Advent where our hearts again, you use that to remind us of the goodness of your grace and that we as Christians above all are a people of hope. That Lord, we live around with people all around us who have no hope. And we've been given a great hope in the gospel and in your word. We would pray that over these four weeks, as we continue on, that you would be doing a work in our heart that would encourage us, challenge us, to be more like you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.